Hello and welcome to Audio Mission from Church Mission Society. I'm Trevor Smith. We hope that none of our mission work is very far from the people who find themselves pushed to the margins of society. And this month, we focus our attention in their direction and travel from Tanzania to Paraguay and Peru. We'll discover deep commitment, significant impact and how working with those who are classed as disadvantaged can be both fulfilling and fun. Mission partners Festo and Grace Kanunga run St John's Seminary in Kilimitinde, Tanzania. It offers a secondary school, a theological college and a nursery school. Festo, the principal, is from Tanzania. Grace is from Cornwall. They talk to Naomi Steinberg and Adam Moxham about their life in this rural location and what keeps them there. I think it's that we feel very strongly that God has put us there. So God put the place into our hearts. And um, we, what keeps us there is a sense that we're not yet done. We actually did do an evaluation of it in the last 12 months. We've been evaluating should we be continuing on or should we be moving on and felt strongly that God is saying that we're not yet finished. Um, but it's nothing spectacular. It's a small village in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's fairly rural, fairly um, disconnected from life. We have to travel two hours to get to a, a town big enough to even get cheese or uh, you know some of the basics that we need. But um, it's a very beautiful um, place and the people are very beautiful. God's given us a, a love for them, a heart for them to serve them. If St. John's didn't exist, what would be the consequences of that, do you think? We employ lots, lots of the local people from the village. Um, that would be dreadful, but also um, educationally because we... So it's a, it's, we're a public school, which is hard for people to sort of understand over here. Because yeah. We're used to public schools being a, kind of for the rich and the elite, and we're not for that, so we have to charge fees, but we... We're much, our fees are much lower than uh, our competitors. So the difference that, that, that the education that St. John's provides, I mean, what difference does it make? What opportunities mm. do students have that they wouldn't have if St. John's didn't exist? Mm. So they're more likely to pass their Form 4 exams than they would in a government school, and more likely to pass it with higher grades. What do you do differently to, to compare to a, to a government school? We actually teach. It sounds really simple, but so even at, at primary level, we've got a young lad that lives with us who's from the village and he goes to the government primary school. And of six periods in a day, you might get taught three or four of them where the teacher actually comes in and teaches. The rest of the time, they just sat there. It's the same in the secondary school. We actually have, in some ways, less resources because the resources are exp in terms of books and things because the government gives handouts to their own schools <laughs> and not, not to private schools. but. We're, we're very serious with our teachers that they have to go into the classroom and they have to teach and they have to give exams and we have to be monitoring the um, continual progress of the students. How do you see yourselves? I suspect you see yourselves as more than teachers, which are, which are almost giving people a chance of life almost. I think we see ourselves as educators but in a broader way than just at a school. So of course we have a school so we have to teach lessons, that's you know obvious isn't it? But even within the community, particularly Festo, people come to him for advice on it can be almost anything. Um, and the village leaders, if they have meetings, they often call him. And he doesn't have a specific place on the committee that they they but they bring him in as, as somebody who knows something about life and the world to to advise. And and I, in a smaller way, do that with women, just in conversation, trying to help people because. You know, if your life is if your life has only been this village and you, you 
you're now 40 or, or 50 or whatever and you've been through, all you had was primary school education and your world is small and the way you, you can understand how life works is small so just trying to drop in little nuggets of well how about this or what if you thought about it in that way kind of so just work, living and it really is living with and, and, and amongst people it's not doesn't feel like work yeah. it is work obviously <laughs> it doesn't feel so much like it because it's just sort of living in the community and trying to be part of it and trying to see lives changed in small ways yeah, yeah. Um, there are people who will say to us and to just mission organizations in general that sending you know, Westerners to Africa, that the time for that is over. What would be your response to somebody who says, oh, we just shouldn't be doing that anymore, that that time is, is past and over? We were discussing this actually only yesterday, because when you talk about people working with refugees or something to do with Syria or the Middle East, or you can kind of think, well, is what we're doing important? And actually, yes, it is important. It's just there's lots of hurt in the world. Um, and there are lots of people that, that need help. Let's hold before God in our prayers the hurt of Tanzania and all of East Africa, which has suffered intensely over the last year from famine and conflict. Now we head to Latin America and Paraguay, where we meet the bishop and his wife, mission partners Peter and Sally Bartlett. Jonathan Self gained an insight into life and ministry among people living marginal lives. For some, the choice is spending money on medicine or hand cream. I was just remembering... Um a Monday afternoon when we were going to look at a passage of script, the passage of scripture where Jesus is anointed with the alabaster, um, the perfume. And this idea came into my head in the morning to give each of the ladies a small little hand cream and talk about and sort of kick off the discussion and the looking at the passage of scripture from have everybody having a small hand cream. And when I handed the hand creams out, and then we did the we did our study and whatnot, at the end, a lady burst into floods of tears and said, God loves me, Jesus loves me. Um, and everybody looked a bit like, yeah. And she said, the thing is, she said, I had put aside, I was saving some money to buy myself some hand cream. And then I had a phone call from a family member desperate for food and the money I saved for hand cream I spent on food on my way to work this morning and then I turn up here and God's given me the hand cream anyway uh, and it's just something really small but I thought that's God is so interested in, in every part of our lives and he knew that that lady was under that pressure and he put it on my heart to take her hand cream. Tell me more about your discipleship groups that you're working with and again how can people who are listening to this yes. pray for you in that? I guess everybody's own, every individual's walk with Jesus and relationship with the Lord is going to be different. Um, and maybe if people could pray that the people I come into contact with, that I would be sensitive to where those people are and to know how to um, encourage them, and particularly how to encourage people when they're facing sort of difficult situations or maybe like feeling like they things have sort of failed somehow in their lives. That, that would be a good thing to pray for me, to be sensitive and um, to know better how to encourage people. And Peter, just tell me a little bit more about what are some of the big issues facing the church in Paraguay? I'm aware that um, if you talk about uh, a bishop in this country, well, be responsible for a lot more churches on one level. So it's perhaps easy to think of Paraguay as 
not that big because you'd be talking the equivalent maybe about 40 churches. What's the size of Paraguay roughly? In comparison to size in terms of physically, um, ge geographically? Geographically it's about one and a half times the size of the UK okay. but as I say the Anglican Church doesn't work in all that area, it hasn't got really any any presence at the moment south of Asuncion and uh, the farthest flung communities into the Chaco would be about 300-ish miles from Asuncion. So it's not all over, but there is a tremendous amount of diversity. You're working with more than one culture, more than two, more than three probably. Oh, um, so you've got all those issues and um, there's, there's plenty to keep me going really. Um, I'm not an educator by, uh, by training so I have to get my head around that. There's a lot of varieties, there's a lot of challenges, there's always personal issues that come up and there's this constant need really to develop uh, new leadership really. Uh, and really to push indigenous communities? Uh, well, we, we, it, it divides into two because we are, what's happened is that there's a, a team that works in the Chaco um, comprised of, well Tim Curtis now is involved in that uh, a long-term mission partner, uh, Chris Hawksby who's an associate, and then uh, two Paraguayans, uh, an ordained minister and a lay person. And there's a whole programme of discipleship training that goes on every month. They visit the communities and, and, and do very solid work there. And then we have a kind of, um, I've developed a, a little kind of selection panel, if you want to call it that. So it's not just me that's decided on um, who really God is, is calling to, into leadership positions, which is working well. And then in the city, you've got another leadership panel and you've got the issue there too. And we've just got three guys who've started at the Evangelical University in Asuncion and we'll be filling in gaps in their training and our discipleship school as well. Let's thank God for all these new initiatives and do please pray, as Sally asked, for the love of Jesus to be known and experienced by those who feel they are somehow living failed lives. Pat Blanchard, who is featured in the latest issue of our newspaper, The Call, leads Shalom, a project which encompasses therapy for people with disabilities and an inclusive church community in Lima, Peru. When she met Naomi Rose Steinberg, she described the nature of that church. It's a very inclusive community. I'd probably say we're slightly more people with disabilities, but, you know, we've got people from the street coming. That's a great thing as well recently. They've had more people coming, neighbours coming into church. So that's really great. And then I say other people invite friends and family and so forth. So we're a, we're a good mix. We're a strange mix. But again, as you say, it makes people more aware of working alongside people with disability. And also our young people's group is all disabilities. Most, no, there's probably two that aren't. But we go to dice and, you know, ch into church groups and they mix really well, you know, and it's, it's good that those young people can see that there are other young people that need a bit of extra help or, you know, can get joined in, you know. So, yeah, every Sunday morning we go and fetch people in wheelchairs. Sometimes there's not many people and then some people, and the neighbour comes, no one came to fetch him so I brought him. <laughs> so, and then somebody brings one person, they go back and catch another person. It's like a ferrying service on a Sunday morning. It's quite fun. You know, life is difficult. Let's celebrate life now. Let's do fun things now. Not Let's not put off tomorrow what we can do today. 
because we think we're not going to be able to let's give it a try let's let's go for it let's paint let's stick let's go out let's have fun let's do something you know enjoy life and do what we can when we can because none of us know you know what's going to happen tomorrow so we just need to try and enjoy things and try and do things together so church mission society talks quite a bit about the word call calling Mm -hmm. what do you feel like is your call I think when I first knew that I wanted to go, because I, I worked for TFM for three years, was overseas for a short period of time, and then went back, went to seminary, and still felt that, as you say, that call, that thing that there was something big out there to do. And when I first was um, went on the mission field, I knew it was going to be a long-term thing. I knew that it wasn't just going to be like one or two terms and go, and I, I felt that. And I still feel that I'm there, for, you know, there's still lots more things to do. There's... The possibility we could start more shaloms in the diocese. I've certainly got one, one or two sites of people that are interested, and so when I go back, um, want to investigate that a little bit further, and also um, just the whole disability thing. Because when I was coming over here um, and we were trying to organise who was going to come to cover me in the church, I said, "Oh, we'll just have a joint service, and all your people can come to our church." I said, "Do you realise what that means for my congregation?" You know, first of all, you're going to try and get them into a car or a taxi to get them there. So that's getting them out of a chair. Who's going to, you know, and that's, it's, you kind of lose your dignity when you're being hauled around, you know. And I know that, you know, when I was in the wheelchair, it's just not the easiest thing to do. I said, when they get there, can they get up into the church? Are there steps? Are they going to be carried? There's nothing worse than me sitting in a wheelchair and being carried by four people saying, no, no, we don't mind doing it at all. But I mind being carried, you know, it's, <laughs> you know. Um, and then I said, well, can they go to the bathroom? You know, because the last person, somebody who's got difficulty, wants everybody staring at them or having to move around and having to open the door or see who, you know, they just want to be able to get on and do what they need to do without anybody, you know, noticing and just doing like everybody else does. And so that kind of, they said, oh, well, we'll have to, when you come back, come around and analyse our churches. So I think when I go back, I'll take a couple of my people and then we just say, well, you need to do this, you need to do that. And if it, I need to help them provide the funding to put the ramp in or to enlarge the bathroom or put handrails in, then we'll do that because it means that if, you know, they can then open up their churches to receive people with disabilities. We Which might, should happen anyway. It should I happen. Mean, I mean, it, it, I mean there, there are le- legislation, you know, and there are in lots of establishments in Peru now. If, you know, if you can't get into this place or you can't do this, then you can sign a book. And I did once when I was in my wheelchair. I signed something and it happened. But that was in a, you know, in a, in a nice middle-class area. I don't know how much it would happen because people just pay bribes and they, you know, when they're doing that, they want to fit as much as they can into their shop. And so the toilet is, you know, through a door that's not even, you know, hardly you can get through yourself, <laughs> let alone if you're on with crutches or a walker. So... Uh, that's one thing I want to advocate for, really, as well, you know. And also expanding the project with the special needs, that that special group of children that we've come to, into contact with, um, which, again, just started with one child, uh, Ines, who had a very bad blistering um, problem, skin blistering problem. And um, we started to help her and realised, you know, you can. she's now going to school and is great. She's still got her problem, but we've learned how to care for her, the cream she needs, the attention she needs, and the pam- family now can manage her disability, and she's a very happy young girl. So we think it's worth our while investing in helping parents, equipping parents, empowering parents to get the right care for their children, and then that child can live within the constraints of that disability. If I were to ask you to summarise the difference that Shalom makes, what would you say? I think Shalom for me has made a difference because it, I don't know, it's like living in community. It's like it's being part of 
you know, rather than just doing your ministry, you feel part of it. You're living it. You're working in it. You're, you know, it's it's part. It's organically part of you, isn't it? I mean, I think so. For me, it makes a whole difference, and it and it's something that God has, I you know, just grown. And I think for the people, Shalom makes you feel more accepted. I think people come in and say that they receive good treatment. Some of the centres, you know, don't treat people very nicely or they're not very friendly. But people come in and they say they. They come in and say, oh, I always like coming in here, it's so peaceful. <laughs> With all the children and everything else going in. But I think Shonlon makes a difference because it's a place where people are accepted, people, anybody can come in, anybody can, you know, it's, it's open, it's, you know, inclusive. And it's, and it's accepting, you know, and it does help people. And we've seen so many people transformed through the therapies, transformed through through being able to pray and being part of that. Even though they don't come to our church, they may worship elsewhere or have their, you know, their Roman Catholic faith but I think what would have happened if Shalom hadn't been there well, there'd be a lot of unhappy people and very frustrated mothers not being able to cope with having a child with disabilities a place where people are accepted it's often a cliche but it's wonderful when it's the reality we are so thankful that in the case of Shalom there is a place of real acceptance for people with disabilities and their families in terms of Jesus' parable of the sower, Shalom is certainly good soil where the gospel is taking root and bearing good fruit. And to close this month, Ian Adams, Church Mission Society's Mission Spirituality Advisor, has a prayer exercise based on just that parable. This prayer exercise, we pray with the parable of the sower from Matthew chapter 13. Listen, said Jesus, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. As we reflect on this parable of Jesus, take some time today to walk in your garden, or a nearby park or field. Feel the path beneath your feet. Pick up a stone, look for a thorn, touch the earth. Reflect on which types of ground you most identify with at the moment and let this inspire your praying. Here's a prayer you can use to accompany this exercise. Jesus the sower, whatever I am today, whatever the mix of path, rock, thorns or soil, Help me to become good ground for you, for your word and for your presence. Ian Adams bringing this month's audio mission to a close. Thank you for listening and join us next time for more voices from God's global mission.